More people in this service has had a good week than in the last service. So y'all should stick with this service because something's being blessed right here. Yeah, something's being blessed right here. Yeah. Um, last night, uh, there was a wedding and two members of our church got married. Uh, it was Dakota Carter and Hannah, now Carter, and it was a great, great wedding. And so uh, they, are, they are off on their honeymoon for two weeks in Greece. Mm-hmm. They are studying where the Apostle Paul, of course, did all his... No, they're not. That's what I think they're doing. Yeah, that's what they're doing. Yeah. So good. Um, we're starting a series called Questions. It's going to be for three weeks. And it's questions that God asks people in Scripture. That's what it is. And so that's what we'll be doing. And to get this started, um, I have some pictures of preschoolers playing hide and seek, okay? And here's the first one. (laughs) This is awesome. Yeah, I like the chair and just the stare at you. you Here's the next one. (laughs) Here's the next one. (laughs) And here's the the, the final two are my favorites. And so you've got this guy right here and this... Isn't that so cute? And this, this person is, you don't see this, but if you expand the picture, he's actually looking through the blinds at you, you know, as he's doing that. So with that in mind, I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And this is what it says. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That particular word know there is an intimate, deep knowledge of good and an intimate, deep knowledge of evil. That's what it is. We were never meant to be intimate with evil. We're never meant to do so. God didn't want that for us. And wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have that intimate knowledge of evil? Wouldn't that be nice? It'd be nice if we just didn't have any knowledge of evil at all, that it was all good. Like that is something that I think everybody in this room, their heart desires, a day where there's absolutely no evil. And God in his grace and his mercy has provided that for you and me through the death of his son on the cross of Calvary and a resurrection three days later. That's what he's done. And when he returns, we will go to a place where evil doesn't exist at all, and evil will just be a memory in our lives. And all we will know at that point is good. And if that isn't good news, nothing else in this world is good news, right? So that is awesome. So they knew it, knew both. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... 
It was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which was his normal procedure. He would come and he would walk with them in the garden. I think that's awesome. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Now, this is an interesting question that God asked Adam and Eve because really it's just basically adult preschoolers hiding in a garden with God looking for them. Because God knows where they're at. He didn't come into the garden and was like, man, they didn't meet me today. I wonder if they're behind a tree or something. I didn't even count for them to hide, and yet they're playing hide and seek today. He didn't think that. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew why they were hidden. He knew that they had already made clothes for themselves. He knew it all because that's, that's kind of the way preschoolers do, right? Um, I, in my lifetime, have had two preschoolers that lived in my house. One was named Quinn, and one was named Aurora, and now they're older, much older, and we would play hide and seek. And uh, my son was much different than Aurora was. It, it, he, he had to learn the concept of hide and seek. They both did, but he, it took him a little longer. For instance, when we started teaching him hide and seek, I would turn and close my eyes and do one, two, three, four, five, you know, do the counting all the way up to 20 and turn around and he would just be standing there looking at me. Then I'd explain, no, you're supposed to go hide. And I'd explain what hiding was. So then what he would do is I would count all the way to 20. And when I turned around, his back was to me, right? Another time his eyes were closed, you know, because he's, he's two, three years old trying to get the concept, you know. And then finally, he started going places to hide. But he would, he would hide behind a chair like this and smile. See, that's when he was cute. This is when he was very cute. So this is, this is Quinn. Aurora, totally different kid. When we started teaching, when I started teaching her, not that Nicole isn't fun, but I'm also fun. So when I started teaching her hide and seek, I would start counting one, two, three, four, five, and she would say six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Like as a young kid, she would just do that. And then it, this isn't a counting game, Aurora. This, this is hide and seek. And so I explained it to her, and she caught on just like that. Unlike Quinn, who would turn around, close his eyes, and hide behind chairs. Aurora got the concept. And so I would count, and this is what I would hear in the house. Going down the hallway, and then a door shutting, and then some like uh, hangers falling on the floor, right? And then she would go, I'm ready, <laughs> right? And so you would know exactly where she was based on her feet and all that kind of stuff, and it was just a lot of fun back then. I just wanna to submit to you today, when you hide from God, you're a preschooler. It doesn't matter which you are, Aurora or Quinn, he knows where you're going, he knows where you are, he knows where you're hiding. So the question is, why would you hide from God? Well, the reason that you would hide from God is because you've done something wrong. You've done something wrong and you're hiding from God. And we all hide from God in different ways. People hide, well, let me just say, people hide from God in different ways. Some don't just, some just decide not to come to church. And somehow in their minds, they think that if they're at home and not at church, 
you know, they won't have to face the sin that they've committed. They won't have to deal with that sin that they committed because they won't be confronted with it. So they're at home. But I'm, but I'm here to tell you that God is just as much in your house as he is in this building. So God knows exactly where you are. And if you're at your house hiding from God, you're not coming to church because you don't seem worthy. You don't feel worthy. You don't want to face what you're doing wrong. And you're just kind of staying there for that reason. God is asking you to, where, where are you? Where are you? Now, when God asks, where are you? It's, it's of course, oh, let me give you a couple other ways. I'm sorry. I just had a moment. Sometimes people hide from God with a smile and a face. Like inside of them, there's something that they did wrong, but they come to church and they put on the show and they have every intent of going out of here and doing that thing again, but they want to keep up pretenses. So they're hiding from God. They, they, they're smiling. Everybody around them thinks they're fine. They, they are hiding within the church. So people sometimes hide within the church. So it's not just people that don't come to church. It's also people hiding within the church and they just smile. Yeah, all the while they're out here doing whatever, you know, and they come back in and they hide in that particular manner. If you're hiding that way, God knows where you are. And so why in the world would God ask this question? Why would he ask this question to Adam and Eve when he knows exactly where they are? Why would he ask this question? Well, a couple of reasons he asked this question. And the main reason he asked this is because when you sin, he wants you back. He wants you back. You're hiding from him, but he wants you back. He, while you are hiding, is in the closet with you. He, while you are hiding, is behind the chair that you're hiding behind of. He, while you're hiding, is still present in your life and he wants you to acknowledge your sin and come back to him. He wants you back. Your sin is not helping you. Your sin is not helping you be a better person. Your sin is not helping you walk with God and make a positive difference in the world. Your sin isn't doing that. And God wants you back for your relationship purposes because he loves you. He wants a relationship and he wants you back in his will doing things for him. So the first question is, where are you today? Where are you today? Are you hiding from God? Or are you really like, no, I'm not hiding I'm confessing my sins, I'm staying the course, I'm walking with him, and I'm trying to fulfill the destiny that he's placed in front of me. So where are you? Where are you? God wants you back. So with that in mind, turn to Genesis chapter 16, and we'll go to the second question. Genesis 16. Um, <clears throat> this needs a little more set up than the first one. So... There's these people in the Bible called Abraham and Sarah, and you, you might be familiar with them. You might not be familiar with them. But um, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, and uh, they have been promised a child. And so for a very long period of time, Sarah has not been able to have that child. Her womb is closed. And so Sarah gets a great, a great idea. Um, it was customary in that day to take your handmaiden and give them to your husband so that there can be a child through your handmaiden. That way his seed would continue to go on. He would have children. 
And so Sarah, working things out for God, decided, and Abraham decided to do this. And lo and behold, Hagar conceives. She conceives. And when she does, she begins to look down on Sarah. There's some tension in the household. Some tension in the household. Two women in the same kitchen. I know some of you are afraid to laugh at that, but this is a true thing, right? My mom's kitchen is her kitchen. Come on, people. It is her kitchen. And as much as we would like to say, no, you can do whatever you want in my kitchen, you can't do whatever you want in mama's kitchen. It has to be the right pot, the right thing, the right whatever it is, the right spoon, the right time in the oven, the right, the right, the right. You can't even load the dishwasher without oversight. Yeah, and now people at the river are like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get it. So it's same kitchen. So here's two ladies and they are in tension with each other. And one is because Hagar is starting to think of herself as better than Sarah because she has a child and she's blessed of God and Sarah isn't because they believe that. If your womb was shut, you wasn't blessed by God. If it was open, if you're having a child, you were blessed by God. So she's looking down on Sarah, okay? And that leads us to chapter 16, um, and verse five, it says this, and Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to, to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to you, do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So there was an increased tension in the household and Hagar said, I've had enough, I'm out of here. And so she left. And in verse seven, it says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. So the second question is, where are you going? Here's a lady that just had had enough of the harshness in the household and she left to get out of that environment. And she's running on the road, she is pregnant and she's beside a stream because she needed water. And so she's drinking water and the angel of the Lord says and said, look, where are, where, where are you going, Hagar? Where are you going? And she answers her, my, you know, my mistress Sarah, we're, we're having a little fight. We're having a tiff. We're, she's just, I just can't, I just can't live in that household anymore. I gotta go. I just gotta go. I'm not making fun of women, but this is a woman in the Bible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so Hera is in the Bible. She's very upset. And God tells her, I completely understand. Sarah is an awful person. So I will help you get to your next destination. That is not what happens. That may be what Hagar wanted to happen because anytime there's tension, we always want someone to take our side, right? We always want someone to take our side. And if it's God, 
we're one up, right? If it's God saying, go somewhere else, yeah, I'm doing the right thing, right? Woo, power to the people. Okay, so nonetheless, he doesn't say that. And this is what he says in the scripture. Very interesting. And he said, verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, by the way, said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, this story is not about Abraham. This message is not about Abraham. It's not about Sarah. I mean, we could talk about some things that they did incorrectly and spend some time there. It's not about that. This message is about Hagar running and God saying, where are you going? That's what this message is about. Because Hagar had a problem that a lot of us often have, and that's a problem with pride. She had a problem with pride. She was creating some tension in the home because, ladies and gentlemen, it takes two to tango. It takes two people to create a tense environment. It takes two people. Like, you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. No, it takes two people. It takes two people. And so, or you don't know my friend that got angry at me. Yeah, okay. I, it, it takes two to tango. And somebody has to decide not to fight anymore. Somebody has to decide. I'm not saying you don't stand for what's right. I'm saying you quit putting up your dukes while you're doing it. You quit using your mouth in a bad way while you're doing it. You stand for what's right, but you do it correctly. You quit the fight. You lay the fight down. You submit. You submit. You see, if you have tension in a relationship, what that relationship needs is a dose of humility, and it's probably you that needs the dose of humility but you don't know the other person. Yeah, but I'm probably talking to the other person right now. Maybe. If there's tension in a relationship, the way to get rid of the tension is for both people to get a dose of humility and submit. And God is sitting here saying, submit and go back. Be a servant to Sarah. And see, the dose of humility is this. I look at people as better than myself. The moment you start looking as peop at people as you're better than them is the moment you need a dose of humility. Is the moment that that red flag waves, I'm better than them, and you're, that's creating tension. That's the moment you're being prideful and you back away from that and you say, no, they're better than me. I need to submit. I need to work at this differently. I need to work at this through the eyes of love and grace and mercy while holding truth in my hand as well. And that's what you do. And the tension goes down. He tells her to go back. Is God asking, where are you going this morning? Where are you going? Now, there are some relationships that just need to stop. There are some relationships that are toxic and you should never go back to those relationships. But I've been at this longer than I would really like to admit. Like I'm before you this morning and I'm still thinking I'm 30 or 26. I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking that, 
right? In my mind, I'm thinking that. But I know the truth that I am not either 26 or 30. I've been doing this a long time. And people that come to me for counsel, and don't take this incorrectly, I love everybody, but people that come to me for counsel, the majority of those people, the tensions in their relationships is over the pettiest of things. It's just so petty, so petty. So dinner wasn't ready when you got home from work. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. I said that right. So the clothes were not clean and he doesn't do this and he seems to come home and, and just sit on the couch all the time and, and watch his phone. Okay, so maybe you're not interested. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just, kidding. I'm just absolutely joking. That's not what I'm thinking. But it's not the point where the tension should be. Are you, are you tracking? It's, it's just, come on, Really? We value, how, do, how, do, how can I say this better? Some people don't really value relationships and it's seen in how quickly they end them. Over the smallest of things, it's such a low price to end a relationship that you've had for five, 10, 20 years, such a low price. And sometimes we end we end relationships over the stupidest of things, over the stupidest of things. There are people that want to, that sometimes want to end their marriage over the dumb, just the dumbest of things. There's some people that want to like go get another job over the stupidest little issues. And what they need to do is they need to hear God saying, uh, where are you going? You need to go back and you need to submit get a dose of humility, and once you get a dose of humility and you submit and you start serving to other people, it's amazing how clearly you can see any given situation. Is everybody tracking with me? Where are you going? He tells Hagar to go back. And when he tells Hagar to go back and submit, he blesses her. He blesses her. He says in verse 10, the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, when you go back and you submit and you start serving other people and making people better than yourselves and stand for truth like you're supposed to, and you're humble. The scripture that says God exalts the humble and casts down the proud comes into effect. Amen? So where are you going? Again, some relationships need to end. I've counseled people to do that before. Some relationships are abusive and toxic, and you don't need to be around those people. But most of the time, the reasons that we decide not to be friends with somebody is over stupid reasons. Please don't do that anymore. There's so much more going on. And your relationships need to be more than that. The price of relationships when it comes from God is the blood of his son. That's a high price. That's a high price. 
So that's that one. Let's go to the next one, all right? We're going to turn our Bibles to 1 Kings <clears throat> chapter 19. This is a passage of Scripture. Some of my favorite characters in the Bible is Elijah and Elisha. I love it when I, when I read through them in my Bible study, in my Bible reading, or whatever. But 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13. And what has happened in this particular moment is that Elijah has been running from God and um, he's, no, he's not running from God, I'm sorry. He's running from Jezebel because Jezebel, the queen, has said that she was gonna kill him. She's gonna kill him. He's scared. He gets depressed. He, he has all these emotions and he's trying to protect himself. So all of a sudden, Elijah, the prophet, becomes, it becomes all about him and, you know, he just gets kind of scared in that particular moment. So, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13, says these words. Uh, verse 13, uh, sorry. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So, to kind of give you perspective here, he has, for 40 days, walked 250 miles and hid himself in a cave. He's in the back of the cave, he's hiding himself, and he's not hiding from God, he's hiding from Jezebel, because he's afraid that she's going to kill him, and he's in a depressive state. So he's in this cave, God knows where he is. So, in a cave. Uh, and a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your, your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am the only one left, and they seek my life. When you get in an emotional state where you're in fear, and you're worried for your life, and you allow that emotion to take over yourself, you get to the place where you're the only person in the world that has this problem. And that's where Elijah is. And so God, being compassionate, loving Elijah, loving him to death, gives him these words of comfort. And the Lord said to him, go, Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. But God, I just, I just poured out my heart to you. Okay, okay, we're done now. <laughs> you need to go, and you need to anoint Hazel uh, king. He's in Damascus. I want you to anoint him king over, over Syria. Oh, well, that's interesting. For the longest time, I thought that Elijah was led to the cave by God. I, I've thought that for many years. I thought that for many years, but that's not the case. Way back when he's with uh, Jezebel, not literally with her, but she's doing the threat, God had told him to go to Damascus and anoint this king. But because he was threatened and because he became so emotional, he negated to do what God had told him to do, and he ran for 40 days to this cave on Mount Horeb, which is a long way away from Damascus. 
And he's hiding in this cave because all he can think about is his protection, his life, and oh, woe is me. That's all he can think about. And what he has forgotten is that God has a purpose for him to do something more than to be in prison with his emotions in a cave. Come on, church. God has more planned for your life than for you to be in a cave drowning in your emotions. He has more for you to do. And God in this moment says, go, do what I commanded you to do. God is not saying that he's not gonna feel fear. He's not saying that he's, not, he's gonna have a miraculous recovery of his feelings and he's no longer gonna be depressed. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is the way to get out of the bondage of your emotion is to do what God has commanded you to do. That's the way to get out of it. Will there be counseling involved? Yes, okay, there's counseling involved. There's more involved, but God is saying here, I have a greater purpose for you. And ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the main components of having a healthy, uh, and I forgot what the healthy is, the healthy feeling. I don't wanna say healthy feeling, health, a healthy emotional state, because that makes me sound smart. A healthy emotional state, that's the main component. It's when you get back to doing what God has told you to do. Well, well Philip, I, God hasn't called me to go anoint a king of Damascus. And if he told me to go change the president in Washington, I would do that immediately. I know what you're thinking. Like, you're probably thinking that, Right? And you'll put somebody, I'm not going to go down that road, but you, you would put your own person. If I had something that great, I would absolutely do it, but I don't. Well, everybody in this room is called to do something. And let me just give you basics, just the basics. Every man in this room is called to be the best husband that he can be. Every man in this room is called to be the best father that he can be. Every woman in this room is called to be the best wife that you can be. Every lady in this room is called to be the best mother that you can be. And for the people that aren't married, that are growing up, that are looking forward to the day where they will, they will be married, you are supposed to be the most faithful you in preparation of that moment where you say, I do. The most faithful you. You follow the scriptures, you follow Jesus, you follow everything that he tells you to do and do not do the things that he tells you not to do so that you can be a man or a woman of character when you find that person that you're supposed to marry and be with the rest of your life. That is your job. Everybody is called to that. And oftentimes our emotions bring us away from those responsibilities. And I think that those, that responsibility that I just told you about is the basis of civilization. It's when a good husband finds a good woman and they get together and they live together their entire life. It's when that man and that woman become the fathers and mothers that they should be to raise the next generation to do the same thing. It is the foundation of our society. It should be. Well, it is. And when it's crumbling, we build it back up and we stay together and we do that. And there is, there is I mean, that is just an amazing vision for you and me, Right? to be godly people and, and pass that on to the little people that are hiding in closets, right? 
to care for them. It's just a great thing. So what happens is sometimes we get so emotional that we negate what we're called to do and it affects what God has called us to do. And I'm not in any way telling you that you should never be emotional or should never have feelings of sadness or should never be overwhelmed or anything like that. What I am telling you is when you do, look in the mirror, look in the mirror and remind yourself, I am called to something greater than hiding in a cave in prison with my emotions. And today, I'm going to do the very best I can to step out and fulfill that calling. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's that. What are you doing here? Here's the last one. Job 38. I know, there's four. It's not Baptist, but it, there's four. There's four of these. Okay? Job 38. Job 38. So Job, um, he lost his family. He's lost his wealth. He still has land. He still has a place to stay. But he's lost everything. He's suffering. He's, he's even um, physically, physically he's suffering. In chapter 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. In verse 4 is the question. It says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So here's a man, Job, that he's going through a very difficult time. In chapter 31, he has just made a case that he is a man of integrity, He is a very faithful person, a a man of integrity. He has followed God. He has followed him to the best of his ability. He has checked all the boxes that he was supposed to check. He has done it all. He has followed him faithfully. And in chapter 31, toward the end of it, and poetically, I I would have to get into how I know this, but but just trust me on this if you don't mind. In, In that moment, what he is really asking God is this question. Are you really good to people who are faithful to you. That is really what he's asking. I have been faithful. I've been a man of integrity. I've done all this kind of stuff. And and what he's asking God is, are you really faithful to the people who are good to you, who are following you? Are you really good to them? It's the same question that some people in churches ask. Some people, when things are falling apart, come to church, they straighten out their life, but they still lose their marriage and then they just give up on God because he didn't help them because they had come to church and they had straightened out their life and he didn't save their marriage. Or I've been coming to church for a very long period of time and, and my loved one is sick in the hospital. I prayed for their healing, but they, they didn't get healed. And, and now they've passed on into eternity and I'm done with church. I just don't know if God if he was really faithful to people that are good to him, then why wouldn't he save my loved one? Why wouldn't he save my marriage? Why wouldn't he save my children? Why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he? And my world is falling apart and I've been crying out to God and I'm just wondering if God is really faithful 
to the people that are good to him, but maybe up underneath that particular question is really this question. And that is going to be shared with you in a moment. (laughs) Because have you ever wondered why God would say, where were you when you laid the foundation of the, of the world? Like when your life has fallen, Job's life has fallen apart and he's wondered how God is good and faithful to him and God's response is, oh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? That is not all that comforting. Right? Yeah? Now, there were people in the first service that I asked that question to and there was maybe five or six people that shook their head, yeah, that I, I see what you're saying there. That's not really that comforting. And everybody else in the room was like, so I came down off, off the thing and said, okay, so the next time you're in the hospital and like you're going through a pancreatitis, I don't, I'm not, this isn't a prediction. <laughs> what I'm gonna say is I'm gonna walk into your room, I'm gonna turn to uh, Job and I'm gonna say, oh, where were you when God laid the foundations? And then I, maybe I'll do a Catholic thing and, and go back. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'll do. Yeah. Spread some water or something. You know, do, do something like that. I mean, do, do you get it? Oh, yeah, sir, you're, I'm at your funeral, right? Um, not yours personally, but maybe hers. Okay, so, <laughs> sorry. Um, sir, you know, I know you lost your wife, but where were you with the foundations? Where were you? Like, right? That's not all that comforting. So why in the world does God say this to Job? Job whose world has fallen apart, Job who's asking the question, are you really good to those that are faithful to you? Because I've been faithful to you. Why is he asking this question? Because Job's real question is this. God, have you taken your hands off the wheel? Have you taken your hands off the wheel? Because nothing seems to be working out. Nothing at all. And this is all crumbling and I've prayed and I'm not sure that you have your hands on the wheel. And so when God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? He is saying to Job in our language, I have not taken my hands off the wheel. And for 77 questions after that, in chapter 38, God repeatedly says, my hand is on the wheel, my hand is on the wheel, my hand is on the wheel. And your suffering is still under my control and I haven't taken my hands off of your life. You see, there are some people that have no trouble trusting God when things are good, but they have trouble trusting God when things are bad. And I'm not really sure how you can do that. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that that's not real faith. You can trust him when it's good, but can't trust him when it's bad. No, you trust that God is doing the right thing in the moment that you're in right now, whether it's good or bad. Real trust is I trust him in the good times. I trust him in the bad times because what I do know is he's working out whatever I'm going through for the betterment of my good according to his purposes. Amen? God has not taken his hand off the wheel. And if you have a moment where you go through that and then he heals you, you praise God for that moment. 
And if you have a moment where he doesn't answer your question, but you wind up in eternity, you praise God for that moment. It all ends in praise because he has never left you behind. Woo. So that's it. That's the four questions. And all, out of the four of them, which ones do you need to think about this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. And thank you for this message today. And I have no idea how you're going to move in this moment. But I know that you have moved and you're still moving. So for the person in this room that's hiding from you, I pray in this moment they'll quit doing that. I pray that they'll come to you. They'll ask forgiveness for their sins and they'll ask you to restore their fellowship with you. For the person in this room that is wondering why in the world they're the world is falling apart. They're wondering where you're at and they're having trouble trusting you with what's going on in their life. I pray that in this moment, you'll strengthen their faith. That they'll sit here and stand in a few moments. They'll pray to you, Lord, I am struggling, but I'm turning this over to you. I pray that in that moment, Father, you will give them the faith that they need, even if it's half of a mustard seed that they'll leave here with more faith in you than when they came through those doors. For the people in this room that has tensions in their relationships, they're so upset at those other people. I ask that in this moment that you'll let them know that they need to give up on their pettiness. They need to submit and return and help them do that. So we love you. We thank you for working in our lives. We thank you for never taking your hand off the wheel. So in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.